1: Politicians and punters in the U.S. alike are fixated on the late-night tweets of just one man. But in the background, hundreds of men and women play out their own political dramas every day, passing laws, appointing officials, or deciding how to spend state budgets. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is Stacey Abrams. For seven years, she served as the minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. Last year in Georgia, she ran to become the first black woman ever elected governor in America. Her Republican rival, Brian Kemp, was narrowly declared the winner by a margin of less than two percentage points. At the time, Mr. Kemp was also the senior official in charge of overseeing elections. This year,
0: more than 200 years into Georgia's democratic experiment, the state failed its voters.
1: Kemp's office called reports of voter suppression a farce, Abrams founded Fair Fight, an organisation to advocate for election reform and engage in targeted voter registration. She's opted not to run for the presidency in 2020, but she's keeping people in suspense over whether she might be standing alongside whoever becomes Democrat nominee next year. So this week we're asking, where does the power lie in American politics? Stacey Abrams, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you so much for having me. You're speaking to us today from the Fair Fight offices. Now, for our listeners who might not know what that is, tell us a bit about your organisation. In the wake of
0: the 2018 election, which was marred by a great deal of voter suppression, ranging from people being removed from the rolls unlawfully, polls being closed, which made it difficult for communities to actually cast their votes. We had provisional ballots that were discarded, absentee ballots that never arrived, and a host of other problems with under-resourced precincts, especially in black and brown communities, I decided that rather than challenge the outcome of the election for my own behalf, I would challenge the underlying electoral system. And the organization that I founded is called Fair Fight, meaning that we are going to fight for free and fair elections in the state of Georgia and around the country. The primary issue is that if even one person is denied access to the right to vote, we have to be concerned. And in a state like Georgia, where we know thousands of people were denied that right, this is a failure of democracy. And so Fair Fight is a nonprofit organization on one side and a political activism organization in its other realm. And our sole mission is to defeat voter suppression in Georgia and around the country.
1: And you ran as the first black female governor in America, and you narrowly lost. Before we get into the politics of voter suppression, what the remedies might look like in a bit more detail, just tell me how you felt when you heard the result.
0: Well, it was a bit of a protracted challenge because on November 6th, the day of the election, the results were so close that the Associated Press, which is typically the standard bearer for calling elections, could not call the election. They did not have sufficient information And one of the challenges was that there were widespread reports of voter suppression. There were polling places that had to be held open well past the closing hour. There were thousands of ballots that had been thrown out under the leadership of my opponent, who served as Secretary of State as well as my opponent in the election. And in the United States, particularly in the state of Georgia, the Secretary of State is the superintendent of elections. To say that it was devastating is to understate the matter, because what happened, instead of having a result on November 6th, we actually had a 10-day period where we had to fight in court four different times to force the state to do its job. But by the time we got to November 16th, what I realized was that the numbers under the system we had were legally sufficient for the Secretary of State to claim victory. But my responsibility was to channel my rage. I was very angry about the outcome, not simply on my own behalf, but on behalf of the tens of thousands of people I encouraged to turn out and who faced not just the disappointment of me not being elected. Yes, that's disappointing, but who faced the ignominy of being denied their voice. And so I would say that my emotions that day were outrage, but also a righteous indignation that said that It's insufficient to just be angry. You have to do something about it. And I would be very misleading if I said I wasn't deeply saddened by not becoming governor of Georgia.
1: In the speech that you gave, you said democracy has failed Georgia. I acknowledge that
0: former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. As a woman of conscience
1: and faith, I cannot concede that. Don't you worry a bit about the precedent of non-concession? Is it a good way for politics to go in a democracy, given that there will always be tight races, there will always be contested uh, election results. And by not conceding, we perhaps set a a pattern at which we don't just accept what happened on the day and then fight the fight afterwards about something like voter suppression in your case.
0: And that's a valid question. However, I think the framing is wrong, because my speech very intentionally Acknowledge the legal sufficiency of the election. The laws as they stood permitted the outcome that we received. The challenge is that democracy is an ideal. It's an idea. We have to all blithely congregate around it and say that we are going to make it so. And the moment we start to erode faith and trust in the system, democracy starts to fail. And the challenge in Georgia was that we didn't simply have a contested election. We had an electioneering nightmare where the person responsible for the election manipulated the system to his own ends, used the laws to his own advantage, and had the temerity to both serve as the judge and the jury, as well as the person whose outcome would be benefited. That's not democracy. In fact, democratic prerogatives say that We've traveled the world encouraging strong men not to do this. And so to have it happen in the state of Georgia put me in a very specific position. One is to continue to uphold the notion of democracy, which is why I didn't challenge the election outcome outright. But my second responsibility is to not give tacit approval to a system that stole the voices of other people. Uh, we often forget that Elections are not about politicians. They're the opportunity that the people have to select their leaders. And if they are not given that chance... The election is not fair.
1: Well, let's talk a bit more broadly about this issue and other examples and what you might learn from them. For a start, I mean, how do you make sure that voter rolls are up to date without risking suppressing the vote? Is there anywhere that you can see doing this correctly?
0: Yes. States like Oregon do a fantastic job, Colorado. I believe that we need to maintain accurate voter rolls. I support laws that say that you should flag. Potential voters who are no longer living in your state, who are no longer eligible to vote, or who have passed away. But what happened in Georgia and what's happening across the country, uh, in fact, it happened just this past week in both Ohio and Kentucky, is that bad actors are taking fairly common sense laws and manipulating them for their own, own ends. The governor of Kentucky basically took over the Board of Elections and unlawfully removed 175,000 people from the rolls. A federal judge had to force him to restore every single one of them.
1: The point today I'm trying to get to is it, it is easy to to sort of see that there's a group of people or large groups of people, in, in, often in different situations between the states, but often with some commonalities who are not getting to vote who needed to vote. But the attempts, for instance, in California to go at it through automatic voter registration have also come under some criticism, haven't they? Registration errors. You you can actually end up over-registering. You you cite there another example of when someone moves state and and then votes in the old one. Always indeed is encouraged to do so uh, by, should we say, actors acting for a particular group. How concerned are you? If you really want to be fair, fairness is in the title of, of your campaign, How far do you go to address those concerns as well as voter suppression?
0: So our fundamental premise must be that every eligible citizen has the right to vote. You begin with that as your baseline. And then you take every step possible to ensure that that is made so. In the state of California, they've been able to flag the errors that have occurred, and they can correct for those errors. But it is always incumbent upon a democracy to err on the side of granting eligible citizens their rights, the constraining those rights so aggressively that people who have the right to vote lose it. And so well, OK, let me give again?
1: you another g- a concrete challenge, a-, a form of ID, some form of ID in order to be able to vote, right or wrong.
0: Let's be clear. The blanket notion of voter ID has always existed. There's never been a time or a state where there wasn't identification. The issue is what form of identification is required. And what began in 2006 has been a shift away from forms of ID that were available to almost everyone to a very constrained list of IDs that become more and more complicated to get, more expensive to hold, and that are intentionally designed to weed out certain voters. So for example, in Texas, you can use your gun license, but you cannot use your student ID. Voter ID is a blanket term that sounds facially and racially neutral. But in the United States, because we have 50 different democracies, in each state, voter ID means something different. And in those states where voter ID has been used as a winnowing process, what they've done is made it more complicated to get the ID that they now require. And it's intentionally designed to push out communities that do not have access or easy access to those forms of ID.
1: Let's talk a bit more broadly about your your politics and your outlook and also what you want to do next, which seems to fascinate us on both sides of the Atlantic. You are the first black woman to be a gubernatorial nominee for a major political party. This is a bit of a please boil the ocean for us question, but where do you think we haven't seen more women of color run for office?
0: It's not that they haven't run. It's that the United States political system is never... Privileged women in particular, and certainly women of color, are the least likely to have access to the resources and the support to stand for this office. I'm the first African-American woman to receive the nomination. I'm not the first African-American woman to run. And across the country, we've seen a handful of women of color achieve the governorship, but often it is because they have managed to navigate some of the most difficult and treacherous conversations in politics. I live in the Deep South, a, a region of the country that is not known for elevating women or people of color to high executive office. And that can only change by having more of us not only stand for office, but by encouraging more communities to get engaged in the process, communities that understand the constraints that face women of color and understand that women of color are going to be more sensitive to and more likely to pursue policies
1: that will help lift those communities up. You've previously said that the media focusing on your race meant that some of your message got lost underneath that. And that must be difficult, a kind of paradoxical line to have to navigate as a woman of colour running for office. And you said at worst it could lead to a, a Crayola version of policymaking. So it sounds like you're a little bit ambivalent about the role that race or identity should play in these races. Am I right? Not at all. I believe
0: in identity politics, because it's always been endemic to politics, no matter where we are. Identity simply means that the person that you are electing can see your experience, understands it, and has policies designed to respond. And certainly as an African American woman, it would be deeply disingenuous for me to ignore how my background and how my race and gender have informed my experience. My critique of the media was grounded in the fact that that was the only thing they talked about. There was a conversation simply about my race and simply about my gender, and not about how those factors actually led to my policymaking and to my fairly innovative campaign.
1: But you see, that's exactly the point, that if you have a sort of identity politics outlook, putting it very broadly, but just for the purposes of this conversation... That identity then becomes the dominating story. I know, right? You can critique the media well, no, no, no. or as much as you like, but that is unlikely no. to remain the case. No, I,
0: my my point isn't that you shouldn't acknowledge it. It's hard to miss it. Uh, I am a, a tall, sturdy black woman. There, I have no issue with that being part of the conversation. But when it is the entirety of the conversation, and there is no, there's no analysis of then why that matters. That's the problem. We have had white men run for office for centuries. The conversation about them being white men is not the only part of the conversation. What then happens next is that we go to their policies. What happens for communities that are outside the norm is that we begin and end the analysis with simply their difference from white men. My contention is not that the press should be exempt from acknowledging the difference, but that they should be held accountable for talking about why that difference exists. I, I think it's deeply disingenuous to assume that simply identifying the phenotypic markers are sufficient conversation about politics. My identity matters because of what it tells me about my politics and what I need to deliver for the communities I represent. But it also matters when I do things that go outside of what you would consider a constraint because of my identity. I campaigned in largely black communities, but I also campaigned in the area where they filmed the American film Deliverance, which is a largely white rural community. I campaigned everywhere, and I never left my identity behind. But because of my identity, I was able to engage communities that looked like me, but also ones that did not because I was able to go beyond my identity as a singular and expand it to to discuss why my policies could affect others.
1: But you know what the argument is at core inside the democratic movement, which is if you suddenly sort of sway towards seeing everyone has been, shall we say, defined in the race more by their own identity or by certain groups that they represent, that you lose your grip on the mainstream, you lose that reach into what we used to call the centre ground, though admittedly it feels somewhat thinly populated at the moment. Do you have any understanding or sort of sympathy for that viewpoint, or do you just think, look, politics has to change so radically, I think that view's over, it's outdated? I think that there
0: has been a deep lack of analysis of why we considered white men as the norm of politics. What we often refer to as identity politics simply acknowledges that people who do not share that normative identity of white maleness have entered the political fray and have brought with them the complexity of their experiences. But that's a reflection of the complexity of our change in demography. However, I'm a straight woman who believes in the identity politics of the LGBTQ community because they have different experiences than I do. I cannot be fired from my job for being heterosexual. Someone in the state of Georgia and across the country can be fired for being gay. It is my responsibility to acknowledge their identity politics because that is their economic security. And as a candidate who talks about economic security, my responsibility is to say, I understand the constraints that you face. As a black woman who has dealt with the issue of having access to reproductive care, my identity tells me that I must campaign on the issue of abortion and access to that care. What we have used this very reductive analysis of identity politics is to say that I'm only going to vote for you because of what I see. That's problematic. But when I say I'm going to vote for you because you see me, which is really what the core of identity politics is, it's what actually led the first African-American woman to coin the term, It's a conversation about the complexity of who we are and therefore how our politics have to reflect the greater diversity of our communities.
1: Let's talk about how you're seeing the race and who holds the power in America in 2020 or as we we look into that crucial White House race. How are you seeing it? Who are you liking at the moment?
0: Well, I think that we have a very strong crop of candidates. I am very heartened that we are going to be successful in 2020. And I am not worried about the electability conversations that are bubbling up again and again, because it's the nature of primaries. People get very antsy and very anxious, but we also know that the candidate against which any of our Democratic nominees will run is someone who is deeply flawed, who has demonstrated uh, a homophobia and a xenophobia and a racism and a bigotry and a misogyny that is not going to dissipate no matter who the nominee is. My mission has been to emphasize, number one, that no successful candidate can win without addressing voter suppression. And two, that my home state of Georgia has to be considered a battleground state.
1: What about your own ambitions here? You've been talked about as a possible candidate for for Veep, possibly for Joe Biden. Am I fishing in the right waters here?
0: So the, the Joe Biden rumor began in the spring. It is entirely a rumor wholly unsubstantiated. However, when asked the question, would I be honored to serve in the role of running mate and as a potential vice president? The answer is, of course, yes, I would. The work that I believe has to be done, the work around guaranteeing economic security, guaranteeing access to education, realigning our values with the values of the world, and ensuring access to health care and addressing and tackling the issues of climate change.
1: There was some talk and and some sort of critical talk. This was particularly, I think, at the time when that rumor was doing the rounds that you might be being considered or indeed considering the the thought of being veeped to to Joe Biden. That He'd had some trouble in his campaign about his behavior with women in the past and also his problems with his family and the business conduct of Hunter Biden, his son. And there was a sense sometimes that, that the vice presidential role can be a bit of window dressing, whether it's on race, whether it's on gender. Are you allergic to that the idea that someone, I would say in this case, Joe Biden, but that someone could see you in that way?
0: First of all, I would say that one, Joe Biden has demonstrated a strong commitment and devotion to our nation. And that notwithstanding the maelstrom that has been created by Trump, there is no substantiation to the rumors about his son or about his behavior towards his son. But more importantly, I think that He acquitted himself extraordinarily well as vice president. And I think that the reality is, yes, we elect a strong president, but vice presidents have been deeply influential in the direction of policy. They've been incredibly important, uh, leaning into the issues that transform our nation. And there are those who occupy that space and do very little. There are others who go into it in a partnership with the president and have a strong influence on our nation. And should someone determine that I am adequate to the task, my intention would be to occupy that second lane and leverage the role and responsibilities, the grave responsibilities of vice president to ensure that we become a stronger nation.
1: What about impeachment? Don't you worry it could work to Republicans' favor by drowning out your message for why Democrats should be in power. It sounds like you want quite a front foot message for Democrats and impeachment kind of muddies the waters. It it splits people's opinion across the political divide. I, I think that
0: we underestimate the capacity of the American people to maintain multiple conversations at the same time. We often have to worry about whether we have access to health care, access to education, and what we're going to watch on TV at night. So we can do both high and low brow at the same time. We can also do complicated economic issues. And we can think about whether the person charged with guiding our nation is doing his job properly, or auctioning it off to the highest bidder. The responsibility of our Congress is to protect our democracy. And I think this goes back to the fundamental conversation we're having. The power of the presidency is a sacred trust, but it is a borrowed power. And if anyone bastardizes that power and misuses it, they should be held accountable, regardless of whether or not we are in a political season. Donald Trump has misused his power. We have seen testimony after testimony simply through the leaks from the conversations and the process happening in Congress. But I believe that once they've gathered their information, going through, I think, a necessarily quiet process, because having been an attorney, I know you don't interview every witness in public. You get the information and you determine if you have sufficient information to move forward. I believe that under Speaker Pelosi's process, they will come to the end of their investigation. They will then open the conversation up to a broader conversation of what the articles of impeachment should or may look like. But I will tell you that my analysis, based on what I've been able to see and hear, is that President Trump has misused his office and should be
1: held accountable. I should bring you to the the question, really the headline question of our show today, and that's where does power lie in American politics and where should it? American power
0: always should lie with the people. The ability of people to be seen and to be heard and to demand of their leaders the outcomes they need to improve their lives. The work that we did in our campaign presaged how effective that could be. Despite the outcome, I led a campaign that tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth participation by 139 percent, increased black turnout by 40 percent, and increased the white percentage of the Democratic vote by a margin higher than any since Bill Clinton. And what we proved is that by engaging the communities that are the least likely to be contacted by a campaign and, more importantly, to be considered by politicians to be worthy of their attention, that if we're willing to make the investment and offer authentic messages, they will participate. Democracy is a question of power. That's the only reason we have these fights.
1: Do you think the Democrats should be embracing this strategy more broadly in 2020?
0: Absolutely, because we know that the impediment to our success was not a failure of outreach, it was a collapse of process. When you have, if we were talking about any other nation, if I told you that the president of a newly industrialized country was counting the votes himself, I think there would be a hue and cry against the outcome of the election. Now, you can't prove that he didn't just happen to win, but there would be questions about the process and that undermines the legitimacy of the effort. My response to what happened in Georgia is that we have adequate evidence, in fact, such sufficient evidence that we filed a massive lawsuit, that the process itself is not fair in our state. And so that lack of fairness is what's at issue. But putting that aside, we turned out more votes than any time in the history of the state of Georgia. That is evidence that the process works, because the traditional approach to campaigning in Georgia, which is the approach that so many are still espousing, had led to dramatic underrepresentation of these communities. And because we did something different, the turnout was dramatically different. I increased the turnout in the midterm election in the state of Georgia in the deep south by 800,000 votes. That is a seismic change.
1: Just as we, we come to an end, we, we must talk a bit about the rest of your life. You've written eight romantic suspense novels under the name of Selena Montgomery. And you said this interested me as someone who loves spy fiction. You said you wanted to write spy novels, but your publishers said men don't read your spy novels by women and women don't read spy novels at all. Is that changing? And what do you would you try your hand at another form of fiction next?
0: Number one, it's dramatically changed. I started writing in 99 And that was also before black women were seen as headline writers. And that has shifted dramatically in the last 20 years. So I'm very excited about my capacity to write any fiction that I think can work. I actually recently completed it a while back, but have revisited a legal thriller that I wrote. And so my mission is to write fiction when I can. I'm a little busy at the moment, but I love fiction and will continue to write it and read it whenever I can.
1: We're speaking to you from London, so I just have to ask you about our most famous spy. Lots of diversity arguments are raging about Bond. I don't know if you've you've caught them. A female Bond, perhaps? A Bond of colour? Who would be your ideal James Bond that we haven't yet seen in the screen role yet. You've given it you've probably given it no thought whatsoever.
0: I actually have. When I was growing up, we used to see Bond movies on ABC, and so I've seen almost every Bond movie ever made. I would certainly love to see Idris Elba's James Bond, but I think the iconic role of Bond has now stepped beyond Ian Fleming's initial characterization and I think it is worthy of that characterization to say that others can inhabit the role. The notion of James Bond has become so archetypal. I think it is strong enough to hold the capacity to have a woman play the role, a person of color play the role. It doesn't diminish what James Bond is because James Bond has now transcended his original programming.
1: Thank you very much, Stacey Abrams. We'll we'll keep up with you on Bond and Beyond. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, And we'd love to know what you think. Where does power lie in America? How can we ensure fairer elections? And of course, who would you like to see as the next Bond? Write to us, radio at economist.com. Or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And we'd love you to consume more of our journalism. You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. We'd be very pleased to have you along. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.